Reflecting on the water As the sun shuts her eyes Don't know why you'll uncover Watch the tide rolling With the moonlight Everything is silent On this wheezy Hey there, this is Missing Magnolias, Scarlett and Michelle here, and we've got a full house with us. First off, we're here to discuss the case of Ivy Lynn Mentel, and we have her family with us today. And Ivy disappeared from Yonkers, New York in June 2011, and it's been 10 years. Ivy's case is a cold case. We have with us today, we have Jen, who is Ivy's cousin, and we have Corey, Ivy's sister, and Laura, forgive me, you're also a sister? A cousin. Cousin, I'm sorry. So Ivy is one of five siblings. Ivy's case is so important for so many reasons. It really depicts how multiple systems within our society failed Ivy. Ivy's family really exhausted all of the efforts in trying to get information about Ivy's disappearance. We're here to try to bring awareness to Ivy's case. We want to know more about Ivy because Ivy is a person and had a full life. And Ivy is more than the culmination of the systems that failed her. Michelle and I, we've covered missing persons cases, but we've never had the privilege of getting to speak with the family. And that's such a beautiful and rare opportunity. So thank you all for being with us here today. Thank you for having us. Tell us about Ivy. What was her life like before her disappearance? She had a full life, went out, had a, you know, a good life, married, then had a son who was autistic at a time when nobody knew about autism. Her marriage crumbled because they didn't know much about this. Autism is hard because my nephew didn't just have autism. He had grand mal seizures. He didn't speak. He wasn't verbal. He would get violent. My sister was informed by a social worker that if she was vicinity of Westchester, she was all right to her son. Of course, she didn't want that. So they placed her in a shelter. And that was the beginning of the end. Can you tell us a little bit more about Ivy's ex-husband? Ivy stayed home taking care of Taylor. It's a 24-hour job. Her husband had the insurance and was the financial provider. It all became too much for him. He could not handle the fact that his son had issues. Back then, it wasn't really a definitive in diagnosis. So he just didn't want this anymore. He left them. When I say left them, he left with no provisions whatsoever. All of her health benefits went out the window because it wasn't where back then where you still had to cover your spouse, even if you were getting divorced for X amount of time under insurance. It was not like that. It was over for her. She was not really in any position to go to court, hire attorneys, so on and so forth. She was relying on social services to assist her and guide her in what the best route for her would be and their guidance is what brought her saying she would get more and Taylor would have more if she was completely destitute. She literally had to put herself in a position of showing complete nothing 
everything stopped in her life. That was unfortunately the, the beginning of the downward spiral. Everything that could go wrong went wrong in the system. What was the time frame when they were going through the divorce and struggling with their son? Taylor was between the age of four and five, probably the late 90s. Can you tell us more about Ivy's boyfriend, the man she met shortly before she disappeared? She met this man, kind of feeling like he would be a safety, someone she could trust. Unfortunately, the worst day of her life was when she met this man. We didn't know much about his past. I found out a lot more about his past through the investigation. I don't think anyone was ever truly comfortable with him, but had to walk a fine line because she was trusting him. So we don't want to push her away. They had issues between the two of them. He physically attacked her and had broken her nose. I pushed hard for the DA's office to do something. That's when we found out that he did have some past situations, which Westchester gave him, I believe, seven or eight months in jail for this assault. When he came out, he came out like, I'm sorry, I learned my lesson. I don't blame you. And clearly that was not the case. He was angry and revengeful. When did you know that something was wrong and that Ivy was possibly missing? We realized something was very wrong because we could not get in touch with Ivy. And Ivy always stayed in touch with the family, especially her sister, Corey. I know it was July, it was a Saturday, July 13th. Think Taylor's birthday, she didn't show up. I went to the precinct and reported her missing, but they really didn't care. And then we just went out there and started looking because my sister walked around with a shopping cart, suitcases. She had a lot of stuff on her. She was hard to miss. I looked all over and there was no sign of her. I know that I wound up in Florida. I don't know. I had to bring my grandsons back. I can't tell you why I wound up there. And I was on the phone with her boyfriend and I was asking him a lot of things. You know, where's my sister? Did you hurt her? I remember him saying, are you recording me? I don't know. I don't know. That was it. And that's when we started the search. We put flyers out, try to see who was the last person to see her. We started trying to backtrack. Yes. Like we were doing our own investigation. Can I ask a couple of questions as the outsider? So just to contextualize this, Ivy is a mother. That's her, I mean, her big defining feature. And we've spent some time talking about mothering and how huge that is in women's lives as victim offenders and everything in the middle. And she's living kind of on the fringes of society a little bit, a transient kind of lifestyle, because she wants to stay close to her kiddo who is in like an institutional setting. The system we're familiar with tends to end up with a whole lot of nothing. So she's hanging on and she is staying at a homeless shelter or something like that. Yes. And that's where she meets this boyfriend and that's where things get really messy, right? Right. Correct. And she stays in contact with y'all a lot, I'm guessing. Y'all seem like a close-knit family. Yes. Are y'all a Sunday dinner kind of family? Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. 
I ask because we're a Sunday dinner kind of family. There's an obligation yes. on Sundays. That, that's how, yeah, we were raised that way. I mean, we saw Ivy. We brought her over. We spent time with her. I mean, up until this point, it was pretty constant. And when y'all reported her to the police, you said they weren't helpful. Can I ask, like, what specifically was their reaction? Do you remember? I went there to report her. I sat there for hours because I said that she was living in the shelter. She was homeless. I guess that took its own avenue where I just had to wait. Like, it wasn't a big deal. On July 15th, that's when I made the first call. Corey called me in a panic saying, Laura, something's wrong. I know my sister. I know, I know. And we know what we know. And I trust in her instincts and gut. She said, I don't know what to do. I made phone calls. I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere. Something's wrong. So, so I said to her, you make the phone calls. I'm going to handle the police. This is my IV diary. Date, time, everybody I spoke to, everything. It's not that they were not helpful. It is the way the system is set up piece by piece by this first you have to have this meet this requirement i was on the phone trying to expedite the entire process that and makes a lot of sense from what i have heard from other missing persons families who have not had positive experiences with law enforcement and their frustrations tend to be that their cases weren't taken seriously it really takes officer discretion to be the key to that case because they have to decide how serious this is. And I think from a law enforcement standpoint, because there's no rules or guidelines or system in place, really beyond just some bare bones for adults who go missing, that there's just all this flexibility in what you can and cannot do. And so we have seen instances where in which we have adults who go missing and immediately there are search teams and helicopters. It was on the news everywhere. Everybody's participating. But that is not anything that is uniform. Absolutely so I, I'm not, not surprised in what I hear. Did y'all know from the beginning, like, did y'all have that gut instinct, oh, the boyfriend's involved? From the beginning, my sister and another cousin, we went to the mother's house because he had an uncle he would always call. And we went to the mother's house, the uncle and the aunt was there. And we knocked on the door. We went in telling them that we were looking for my sister. The uncle didn't come down right away, but I know the aunt was very nervous. If she could have picked us up and thrown us out, she would have, because she would kept saying, they're looking for her sister. And she just wanted us out. You could just tell by the nervousness, the body movements, they knew something. And I'm telling you, if she could have picked us up and thrown us out, she would have done that. When Ed realized that he was the person of interest, like when the police went looking for him to speak to him, all of a sudden, and it's a very familiar scenario, he lawyered up. What was your experience with the media and how hard was it to get coverage for Ivy's case? They put us on with this great detective. He had us on the news. We call the newspapers, radio stations, the major television. We did the Spanish. I think the media tends to enjoy juicier, made-for-TV movie-type moments. I've noticed, even when I work for the police department, 
when we had serious things involving even children and whatnot, the media wanted the story about the wealthy socialite, and that's what they want to hear. When I talk to news outlets about the missing person's experience, I say, as an outsider, I say, you can't imagine the grief. You don't know what it's like to have prolonged missingness. And that not knowing is so psychologically hard to deal with. It is. Her personality was so kind, so sweet, so compassionate, always a smile, always joy. She had this personality that was bubbly and happy. We were all raised as brothers and sisters, not as cousins. And the heartache, the anguish, to listen to her, my cousin's voice and her tears and her pain, it's gut-wrenching. The unknown, it's just a horrible, helpless feeling. It really is. What do you think is needed to revitalize this case or break this case open? First, finding out his status. They need to locate him, find out where he is, and revisit bringing him in for questioning. That's really the only thing that can be done. Thank you all so much for letting Michelle and I do our small part. Can we also give a description of Ivy for anyone, like we said, that might have information? Did she hit five feet or five one core? Yeah, five one. Very light skin, black hair. Like Snow White. She had a scar from a dog bite. Yeah, on her lip. She had an infectious smile. Yeah. She was tiny, tiny, physically tiny, thin, like a little Cupid doll, as they would say. Big brown eyes, very bright. Fair skin. She drew you in. If you saw her, you would remember. Jen sent me pictures. She's beautiful. And I'm so happy that we have the platform we can share on social media. And if anyone does have any information, and Laura, please correct me. I think I have the number of the Yonkers cold case unit. And that's 914-384-6451. One more time. It's 914-384-6451. And we're also happy to connect you to the family. If you have information, we'll kind of liaise between the two. And is there anything else that you want listeners to know? We really do appreciate you handing us this opportunity to speak about Ivy. For ourselves, we want some kind of resolution. But I think also if it could help other families to understand that you make the phone call, you make the report, please don't think that you can now sit and wait and that things are going to be done for you. Right. You know what? Be annoying. The worst thing I'm ever called in my life is annoying. I'm okay with that. Go out there, do as much legwork as you can, obviously in a safe manner. Be proactive make up your own flyers, push, push, go out there and keep a book, document every single thing, time, date, who you spoke to, what they said, everything document, because you just never know when something in those notes are going to make a difference. You guys really are putting such great effort forward for families like ours and all the other families. 
even with the more recent cases that are coming to light, this is what you guys are helping us with. And so granted, maybe people consider it a cold case or it's 10 years later. And you know, why are we going to keep searching? Because at the end of the day, every family wants their closure. And that's all we can ask for. And yes, with the help of the public, even people down to TikTok who are becoming like these great PIs, people are out there and they're watching. If you know something, say something. It sounds cliche and kind of corny, especially us New Yorkers. We're so embedded in us. <laughs> but truth be told, if you see something, say something. You don't know who you could be helping out. And so once again, thank you to you both. And I really pray and hope that this just continues to take off and brings a, a lot more peace to other families. So thank you. Thank you very thank you much for yeah. your compassion. Oh, thank you. And listening. We'll see you at Sunday dinner. We'll, Michelle and I will bring the gumbo. <laughs> we'll mix. I love hate. cooking for. I Yay. love cooking for a lot of people. Thank you. Love it. Love it. Thank you. God bless you.